Hi everybody, come on in, pull up a chair, and welcome to Dorothy's Place, a podcast from Solidarity Hall about new visions of community, community building, and the rising solidarity economy. We took our podcast name from Dorothy Day of Catholic Worker fame, but you will find all kinds of community people around the table here. I'm Elias Krim, the founder of Solidarity Hall, and my co-host is Pete Davis. Pete. Hi, everyone. So glad to be here at Dorothy's Place. Hey, good. Let's see. Let's give our locations. Pete, you're in the Boston area. I am uh, usually in the Boston area at law school, but right now I'm coming to you from Falls Church, Virginia, right outside of D.C. Oh, very good. You're, you're native turf, right? Yep. And we just celebrated our biggest community building event, which is the Memorial Day Parade and Festival. <laughs> so I'm in a very local community mood. <laughs> I, yeah, right. I hope you were leading the parade. Cool. <laughs> All right. I'm I'm uh, south of Chicago a bit. I'm in Valparaiso, Indiana, a leafy college town. So I'm more in the Midwest. And we might say this is our maiden voyage with this podcast. So, okay, episode number one. We should probably let people know what's coming here. Um, most of these episodes will be a conversation with someone we think is doing great work. So in a minute... Uh, we'll be talking with Matthew Loftus about his work in the area of community health care in Baltimore and also in the South Sudan. Uh, but first, we wanted to share a couple things with you, uh, such as a book or reading that we might want to recommend. Uh, Pete, what is your pick today? So my book, our maiden book of the episode, uh, is Diminished Democracy by Theta Scotchpole. It's a book, top five books of my life, and it changed uh, my vision in terms of uh, strategy for national community building. Wow. Uh, so to tell a bit about the book, uh, Theta Scotchpole is a uh, scholar at Harvard, um, does a lot of work in uh, institutional uh, thought. So the design of national political institutions, how institutions play together to form our politics. And what she studies, she opens, I think the best way to give people an intro to this book is she opens the book by walking through a cemetery um, in the early part of the 20th century and noticing that if you go and see cemeteries where there are people that are buried who were alive between, say, 1880 and 1920, um, you'll start noticing that many of them are listing their positions hmm in federated societies on their gravestones. So people are saying, I was the president of the 45th Lodge of the Eagles or the Elks, or I was in the Masons, or I was in the Audubon Society. And she uses this to say that there's this lost structural form that formed a huge part of American politics and probably is the thing that built uh, upon which the populist, progressive, and uh, early FDR, New Deal eras were built, yeah, yeah. which is the form of the federated society. So then she goes into second part, um, and I'll keep this quick, but I think it's I want to entice people. What is this federated society? So the federated society are organizations that have local chapters, which um, uh, that federate into a national organization. So you have a local chapter, maybe regional state and national conventions that that weave those chapters together. Huh. And what she said was so special about these is the local chapters provided important face-to-face -face community, but they also they also provided like opportunities for service and connection, but they also yeah. burbled the opinions of people in a local community up through the federation to let uh them move nationally. So the American Legion would burble up their opinions about the GI Bill, and then the GI Bill would pass. And presidential candidates would go to the national and state conventions of these federated societies, hmm. and people wanted to stick with them and hmm. donate to them in routine ways. Mm -hmm. Because even if you weren't as excited about the national project this year, you were excited that your friends were in that. And you donate to your local chapter because you care about it in a real way. But some of those funds would go to state and national projects. And then the final part is the decline of this institutional form, which is the subtitle of her book, which is 
from membership to management in America. Yeah. And all these organizations, they said, well, this isn't very efficient. You know, we have to plan all these bake sales. We have to have all these local chapters. We have to have all this real estate for the local houses. If we're just trying to say, help the Sierra Club, why don't we just have everyone just send checks yeah, right. to DC and have the experts in DC work on it? Mm -hmm. um, and then, and for a while, yes, that was a little more efficient, but then slowly but surely, those experts in DC could not tap the anger or the, um, like their letter, their kind of mailer campaigns, which eventually became these emails we get from all these organizations. Mm -hmm. They only can mobilize people based on like anger or crisis. Yeah. They lose the routine thing. People are less passionate about it because their friends wow, aren't part of it point. anymore. Great point. And, um, everything from the parties to the churches to the political organizations to even just the fun groups like the Elks um, all got cored out. And it's really the story of politics in America where we have people sending us to vote on certain days or send money because we're in crisis, but eventually you get sick of it um, and it's not part of your daily life anymore. And so I, I think uh, we could all learn from this and maybe build up some federated societies again. So um Definitely check out that book. It'll uh, really give you some institutional strategy for community building. Excellent. Excellent. Yeah. Well, it sounds good. Okay. You know, um, the other item we wanted to do in our little intro here is to just pick an organization and do a little quick spotlight thing. And I want to mention in Columbus, Ohio, a guy, a social entrepreneur named John Rush who has a, uh, a business called Clean Turn, cleanturn.org. Um, this guy is a former Marine with four graduate degrees, including an MBA and a degree in theology. And he is out to prove something. And what he wants to prove is that you don't have to have a nonprofit fr framework in order to run profitable businesses that employ people with tough backgrounds. People coming out of prison, coming out of human trafficking, addiction, and homelessness. And so even more than that, he has a, this goal of wanting to change the business culture to one where everybody, regardless of your background, can flourish. So he has created, he's actually done a number of businesses over the last, say, eight or ten years. But Clean Turn is a demolition company. Um, that is a real community. So the secret to this particular um, approach to the workforce is to supply all kinds of sort of um, support, particularly kind of social capital support. And that's on the men's side. On the women's side, he has a business with, with a wonderful name. It's called She Has a Name Cleaning Services. And uh, they do just that. They go into office uh, buildings and and do weekend uh, cleanup, but these are f the businesses for survivors of human trafficking. This guy has uh, looked at running for Congress. He's very articulate, and I think the only reason he lost a recent election for city council is that he described himself as a social entrepreneur, <laughs> <laughs> which no one no one in Columbus could quite figure out. Anyway, wonderful guy. So let's go over the names of this again. The book was Diminished Democracy by Theta Scotchpole, and the name of this organization is? CleanTurn.org uh, in Columbus, Ohio, and John Rush is the CEO. Two great things to check out. Yeah, very good. Okay, let's meet uh, Matthew Loftus. And Matthew, why don't you tell us a little bit about your background and uh, what you do? Sure. Uh, so I am a family doctor. Uh, I live right now in Baltimore, although my family and I are headed uh, very soon to East Africa uh, to work in um, teaching and practicing family medicine there. Um, I trained in Baltimore and lived in West Baltimore uh, in Sandtown, uh, which I think was most famous recently uh, for being the neighborhood where uh, Freddie Gray was from and uh, suffered his fatal injury. Um, and uh, is a part of um, a church there called New Song Community Church and have been very interested in um, solidarity um, as a means of dealing with the profound 
economic, spiritual, moral crises that um, our country is facing. So I think that is what makes me interested in a place called Solidarity Hall and uh, trying to figure out um, how to apply those principles to healthcare. Yeah. Matthew, your blog has a wonderful title, uh, Doctors Without Boredom. <laughs> and as people yeah. were reviewing your recent life history, uh, you clearly have not set things up to be bored. Uh, not at all, no. <laughs> could, we, could we ask, it's just kind of a great opening question here, what is it like to have you and your family evacuated from the South Sudan? Is, is that a, a dramatic movie-like scenario, or what, what was that like? Um, it was not dramatic or movie-like at all. It was sort of a matter of waking up one day and um, realizing that um, it was just simply not as safe as it used to be um, oh. and beyond the level of safety that I think we could, our family could tolerate. Yeah. Um, and so it was a matter of calling the airline. It's, it was a lot of sort of uh, paperwork, busy work, calling the airline, uh, trying to find out when the next flight was coming in, who would go on the next flight, how much stuff we could pack. Um, it, was, it was not very sexy or exciting at all. Um, no, you know, bullets flying overhead while a helicopter lands. Although we have known people who have been in that sort of situation. Wow. Um, for us, it was a it was a lot of um, sort of arranging and packing and then and repacking, um, and then saying goodbye to people and trying to arrange for our friends who um, were South Sudanese, um, trying to get them all set up um, for the same sort of um, to also evacuate as well. Yeah. You know, Matthew, I was just telling Pete, I watched the video about your team leader, uh, the one mm -hmm. that's on the uh, website. It's a very moving, incredible video, um, just yeah. in terms of the scene there. Um, I, I wonder if you could just give us your sense, first of all, just the South Sudan. What, what are we talking about with this, what, very new country? It's only been a, a formally a country since 2011. How would you describe the place? Um South Sudan is, uh, I mean, it's a, it's a tragedy in so many different ways. Um, in some ways, uh, you know, I mean, there was just so much hope for South Sudan. Um, it had been fighting the civil war hmm. against the North for all of these years and really wanted some very basic freedoms. Um, the freedom, you know, not to be abducted, the freedom not to, uh, or the freedom to worship, the freedom not to be sort of uh, subject to military terror at any um, given moment. Um, and, uh, you know, after years and years of fighting and advocacy from the West, they finally got that freedom. Um, but uh, very quickly, um, you know, the having had uh, much of the country's infrastructure destroyed and um, its best, some of its best people um, had had to flee, um, it, there was just no basis for building a nation um, necessarily. Um, there was certainly money, but there wasn't the expertise and um, there wasn't the infrastructure. Um, and it just kind of exemplifies how, uh, how fundamentally basic security is, um, I think, because um, a lot of people felt insecure. And so when you, you know, when you personally feel insecure and you're, um, tribe and your town feel insecure, then um, you're going to just start distrusting others and trying to make sure that you have enough power um, to secure what you need for your family. And um, there's a lot of corruption as well at the top. Um, so again, that sort of exemplifies the need for basic legal institutions and uh, accountability for um, leaders in the government. Um, so, and I mean, in our, in the case of healthcare, it just shows that health itself is contingent on so many other political and security realities. Like I, you know, I was available at night um, as the crisis developed to um, take care of people at the hospital if need be, um, but people didn't feel safe going on the roads and they were not safe on the roads um, at night. And so, you know, sometimes we'd get people coming in the morning when it was already far too late um, to help them or help their baby. So it just kind of, I don't know, it's, it's, it's tragic, it's telling, um, and it's uh, just sad that, um, that 
the leaders of South Sudan can't get their act together to um, mm-hmm. to take care of yeah. their own people. I'd love to ask you on this topic of security mm-hmm. um, a little bit about your journey of uh, of faith that led you to being in this uh, situation and led you to still doing this type of work. You wrote a post recently on mere orthodoxy about how um, there might be an idolatry of security in you know middle class American suburban life, and um, it's the job of a you know a Christian to question that. Um, and so when you, I'd love to hear your story of how you came to be the type of person that wanted to bring your family to these situations and and serve. Um, did you go to medical school with this in mind? Did it come to you after you were in medical school? Um, I think listeners would love to hear uh, how what leads someone from a normal American life to <laughs> winding up in the South Sudan. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I can't say I had a totally normal American life because I was the oldest of 15 children growing okay. up. <laughs> so that's how it begins. Yeah, yeah so that's, that's how it begins with your parents. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, doing something crazy for Jesus, um, they, you know, I'm sure a lot of a uh, lot of listeners have um, theological objections to birth control. Ours, you know, we're Calvinists, so it's we've always said that it's more of a post hoc justification um, than a like actual theological reasoning. Um, but in any case, my um, you know my family was used to doing crazy things for Jesus, and so um, when I started uh, going on short-term trips in high school, um, I found that I really loved the cross-cultural work, and um, I knew that that was something I wanted to do, and something you know as I got older that I felt like God was calling me to do uh, with my life, um, and so um, you know I, I think just. Uh, imbibing um, stories of missionaries and stories of um, people who, um, you know, were willing to sacrifice for the sake of others and for the sake of um, God's glory, I think just helped um, help, help me see the value of that um, and how, you know, and, and then I think also just a sense that, um, you know, security is such a... Um, such a squishy thing like you can be you know we you know we felt very safe in one of the world's most unsecure countries um for many months before we left and we were constantly reevaluating that obviously especially as things went on um you know and we lived in um west baltimore for six years before that where you know people don't even want to drive um but, you know, we, because of the people that we knew and the, the places that we knew, we, you know, we knew there were, there were certain blocks you didn't want to walk down um, and other places where it was fine to just be hanging out at night. Um, and so having, you know, having that knowledge and that experience and that calling and um, I think just sort of just over the years formed me. Um, and, you know, as a matter of, you know, I felt like God loved me and uh, loves my family and that he will protect us if he asks us to do something, um, no matter how crazy that is. And, um, yeah, so, um, I just kept sort of following that calling of, um, serving cross-culturally, um, until, uh, we found a place, uh, where we felt like we could do that, um, while doing medical education. And so that brought us to South Sudan and that's going to take us back to East Africa. We're still trying to figure out exactly where, within um east africa we're going to do that um but yeah does that I hope that answers your question definitely you know matthew i'm wondering what what were the um sort of lessons and impressions that you got from the first trip that will be in your mind as now you your family and do you have one or two children small children uh, we have three actually three, have actually. a okay. yeah an almost five-year-old a two-year-old and a three-month-old Wow. And everybody's going. Everybody's going. Okay. So, so what, what sort of things will be in your mind on the second trip? Um, I think in the second trip, um, there will certainly be a, a sense of wanting to plant in a place where we can uh, serve long term. I think one of the, you know, we went to South Sudan in the first place because we, uh, 
we knew we wanted to be in a place where we could build an institution. Um, and so, uh, you know, we, we knew going in that there would be a risk that what we built might not be able to be sustained because of the political realities. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, we, we thought it was an acceptable risk to take and, well, you know, we thought wrong because <laughs> uh, now, unfortunately, the hospital is closed. Oh, wow. um, yeah. So, um, you know, but the people that we invested in, you know, I, I think I, I will, you know, knowing that the people that we came to serve were primarily the health professionals um, and that uh, wherever we go, they will take whatever we teach and train them with. Mm-hmm. Um so I think just really wanting to focus on um, giving um, the African pro- health professionals that we work with um, skills and um, uh, training and whatever else that they need um, to continue doing the work for the rest of their careers, um, because they, you know, they already have um, a heart to serve. They already have a, a dedication and um, intellectual capacity. Um, to um, do more, I think, over their lifetimes than we could, than I could ever do in in one career. And so, I just want to, you know, give them what I've learned um, in our U.S. medical system and um, just equip them. Um, and I think now, this time, I'll have in mind a little bit more of, well, you know, the things change rather rapidly, and um, so I want to make the most of whatever time I spend with with any one person to, um, to try to bless them. Yep. Yep. You know, I noticed in your blogging, uh, Matthew, you make a, a point about a different way of understanding healthcare from the conventional way. And that is you are very much about community partnerships. And mm-hmm. so you've done work in that way in Sandtown. Um, you know, there are some amazing models in other parts of the world uh, if you go to the area around Bologna, Italy, if you go to Japan, they have things called social care co-ops. So I just wanted to get your sense of, you know, in terms of the um, the sort of uh, wider strategy here of um, healthcare. You know, what do you see? What do you see, think is possible in the way of that kind of collaborative stewardship of healthcare? Uh, I mean, anything is possible. Um, I think we just have to, as to the degree to which one is willing to burn it all down and start over yeah. um, is the challenge. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that was one of the exciting things that we had in South Sudan was like, there's nothing here. Uh, we could we can start from scratch. Huh. Um, and, uh, you know, I think, it, again, before the security crisis precipitated um, moving, then I think there, there were a lot of uh, partnerships we're developing with the Ministry of Health and um, other hospitals to try to work together. Um, and and I do, you know, I, I say, you know, I, I use the phrase burn it down a lot, um, so half jokingly. But, you know, I think that we have to acknowledge that, you know, there's a certain... Um, there's a lot of rent seeking that happens in medicine, um, particularly among physicians, and people don't want to have to give up their power and their um, and the security that comes along with those um, having that kind of established um, system. Mm-hmm. And so we have to be willing to sort of disassemble some things. Um, I think uh, one of the clearest examples, I think, uh, and I, I've come to this you know, over and over again and the things that I've written is that, um, you know, there are a lot of things that um, physicians do and even some of the mid-level professionals do, um, like uh, nurse practitioners and physician assistants, that you really don't need and, you know, seven years of formal education to yeah. do. Yeah. Um, you don't need to be a doctor to order vaccines or order a colonoscopy or, um, you know, treat someone for very simple diseases. Um, you know, around the world in places where there is um, a severe shortage of um, health professionals, you know, there are little, the WHO has developed these very straightforward manuals um, for um, basic care of things like childbirth and childhood pneumonia and things like that. Um, you don't, some of them you don't even have to be able to read in order to, do, you know, you don't have to be able to read in order to safely deliver a baby. Um, you don't have to be able to read to know when you are not going to be able to safely deliver a baby, and so you need to get help right away. Um, and I think we have to be willing to sort of break up 
the power that is concentrated um, in the hands of um, uh, the higher echelon of health professionals and medical institutions and things like that. And I think we have to be willing to distribute it in communities. Um, I think a lot of problems with um, people being unhealthy uh, is that they don't feel like they have the power to take care of themselves or they don't even recognize the power that they have yep. uh, to take care of themselves. And so we have to be um, uh, finding ways to give people back that power and, and empowering them. Um, and I think that um, uh, sort of channeling that power through local institutions, I've actually never heard of the social co-ops in Bologna, so that sounds um, really intriguing to me. Um, but one of the things I'm a big fan of is uh, community health workers mm-hmm. um, and, and sort of having people who know a particular community or neighborhood and um, are focused on helping people in that community um, deal with some of the most common health issues that arise. Um, and uh, I do think that there's a lot of power um, in um, these other social institutions because medical institutions have learned – you know, they've, they've formed themselves to only think about human bodies in isolation from um, other human beings and other um, and the social context and, you know, our spiritual context. And um, a church, for example, is um, not <laughs> uh, like that. They, you know, churches are trained and formed to think about um, human be- or I hope they are anyway, um, uh, think about um, human beings in their context, in their communities and as bodies and souls. So. Um, I think that there's a lot of power, a lot of potential um, in helping people to be healthier in those contexts. Yeah, yeah. It, it's it's so funny you say that. I'm in law school right now, and I see so many similarities as as you've said that, which is, you know, there's a cartel of lawyers. Uh, they don't let pa- paralegals do any of these things that they definitely could do. Mm-hmm. They don't empower citizens to take on their own cases in ways that we definitely could do. And they're not present in the community seeing people as their whole selves. They're taking each isolated legal incident as, oh, here's a specific problem to be solved when they may be all connected. Mm-hmm. So I bet this is happening um, in many institutions um, and probably most dramatically in health. So it's so interesting mm-hmm. for you to say that. And I'd love listeners, um, if you if you see a similar phenomenon in your uh profession to write in and we'll mention it next episode. Um, I'd love to hear a bit about, you know, healthcare is now to the, on the front burner of American politics. Again, it cooled down a bit after the passage of Obamacare, but now it's back. Um, and I'd love, and I saw that you were writing about, um, hepatitis C uh, access on your blog, on mere orthodoxy as well, uh, a treatment access. And I'd love to hear your take on um, one, you know, the current uh, uh, political fights happening on domestic, in terms of domestic healthcare, and also what role churches should play in that. I think it might be surprising to some folks to think that there might be a role in health, uh, for churches to play, and I'd love to hear your take on that. Uh, yeah, so um, so two part question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the so the current political scene. Uh, well, it's um, uh, someone. I think it was it was Liz Brunig who uh, said that it's sort of like when the orcs and the urukai can't are so busy arguing over. Um, who gets to eat the hobbits um, that start fighting each other. That was, that was sort of, you know, the different grooves of Republicans yeah. sort of at each other's throats about yep. how, many, how many poor people can we take health care away from? Yep. Um, yeah, so I, the it seems the the intra... The, the intra-Republican debate right now, I feel like, is... is is about sort of which um, which rentier class do they want to favor? Um, unfortunately, and um, I do I do really like um, Cassidy Collins' proposal, um, which has been floated around. It's I don't think it's ever been put up for a vote or anything, um, and it's um, trying to sort of uh, at least get um, 
everyone covered for some sort of some basic emergency stuff. I think it doesn't go far enough in a lot of ways, but it's at least a step in the right direction of trying to say, well, you know, we we have everyone has ought to be covered um, in some way. And we, you know, and then we, we have to also sort of work it out so that all these other intermediary um, institutions are like working together and not necessarily always trying to get more money out of each other at the expense of the patients. Um, so, so that's a step in the right direction, but everything else um, I feel like is, is just off the rails and in, in philosophically, um, because it, you know, the, the majority of the GOP at least seems to be interested mostly in cutting taxes. Um, and they talk about choice. It's mostly the choice for insurers to charge you more for something you might need. Um, and, um, yeah, so I, I, I think that's a mess. I, and I, you know, I think that on the democratic side, you know, there's a much stronger push now. I think there's a realization that, um, the ACA made a bad system bigger. It had definitely had some fixes within it to try to make the system a little bit better. Um, mm -hmm. And certainly, you know, I think all it, all of us in healthcare are deeply concerned that those thing that those changes introduced by the ACA, which tried to, uh, you know, a lot of hospitals kind and. Uh, medical providers kind of stake their financial future on adjusting to those changes. And so having things revert, um, you know, no idea, we have no idea where, where, what would happen um, with some kind of full repeal. Um, and, you know, so the Democrats, I think, are now trying to push more towards um, single payer if they aren't just satisfied with trying to um, keep the ACA from being repealed. Um, and I think single payer is... Um, you know, it's 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 a viable option. I think it meets the basic test of um, allowing, you know, making sure that any um, citizen who needs health care to survive will will get it. Um, but I, I do. It does concern me that there, you know, I think people um, are are unwilling to challenge some of the more fundamental problems um, with the way that we take care of um, our bodies and are connected to ourselves. Um, I think especially the language of healthcare as a human right um, is a little troubling to me because that makes it sound like it's something that the government has to provide to you in order to allow you to continue to be a completely autonomous human being. Um, and not so much it's an obligation that we have to one another um, because, you know, we love each other, <laughs> um, that, we, that we have neighbor love. And, and I, you know, I think the, the rhetoric gets confusing. And um, but, yeah, so the so on the on the bigger level, um, there's there's a lot of confusion and, um, you know, who who knows where things are going politically uh, one direction or the other. Um, but, uh, yeah, so that, so that's the first, and sorry, what was the second question? Um, I think the second question is what role do churches oh, the play church. in yeah, yeah, yeah. and the <laughs> politics of healthcare? And well, since you, this might be connected to that question, since you yep. just said, you know, I know a lot of, um, lefties and liberals who believe mm -hmm. that, um, and like myself, many of most of the time it's, um, we believe, oh, you know, if I'm, if I care about justice, let me just make sure we have single payer, you know, healthcare is mm. paid for and then it's done. And I'd love, you just said that's not enough. It might be necessary, but not sufficient. And I'd love to hear some examples of, um, what are, what are some of the like deeper, more loving, more communal, uh, aspects of, you know, building community health, uh, too. And I think that'll probably, uh, dovetail well with your answer of what churches should be doing on healthcare. Yeah, yeah. So, um, I mean, I, I think the easiest way to think about what, why single payer is necessary but not sufficient, or or just insufficient, um, is if you, um, you know, any healthcare provider can tell you about people that they know that have um, Medicaid, food stamps, and Section Eight, and uh, are still miserable and locked into poverty. Um, 
and uh, that and you know I'm not and so and don't get me wrong I'm not saying that um, if we took away their food stamps and their Medicaid and their Section 8 that they would become less that they would somehow figure out what they needed to do with their lives in order to you know pull themselves up by their bootstraps um, but that uh, you know that there is an attendant spiritual poverty um, that is also rampant um, and that does not distinguish by class um, and so, um, you know, that there are, um, you know, uh, there, uh, so, um, you know, I, I, think of, you know, I had, I had one patient, um, who I think particularly affected me, uh, when I was a resident that I cared for, um, and she had HIV and, um, but she did not want to, um, she, she was deeply ashamed of this and I think, um, had, had a lot of, um, shame, especially related to how she had contracted it through um, a partner who was unfaithful, and um, that, um, and she didn't take her medicines, um, and uh, she didn't. She was so afraid of other people finding out, and I think she was afraid of sort of facing the issue herself, um, and just that level of um, shame and and heartbreak. Like there isn't you know, there isn't a program for that. Like, you know, we try to get her to go to counseling and talk to psychiatrists and, um, all of those things. And, um, you know, it didn't work. Um, and I think that having, um, you know, and I think the closest that she had was that she had a, a really good friend who, um, who kind of, when, when we finally got, um, uh, this woman to sort of admit it to her best friend. Her best friend was like, oh yeah, I've known for years. I was waiting for you to t tell me this. Um, and, you know, but that, that wasn't enough because, you know, all the other um, folks in her lives were just, you know, kind of creating chaos. And um, so I, I think that that sort of exemplifies the fact that, you know, that this woman needed um, a loving community, you know, more of a loving community and, um, uh, I can think of many, many other people, um, that I've taken care of over the years who were, um, either estranged from their community or they were surrounded by people who were, um, trying to take advantage of them. Um, or they just, um, you know, didn't have people in their lives, um, to love them. And so, um, their health got worse and worse, despite the fact that they had, um, access to doctors and physicians and medications and physical therapy and home nursing and all of these other things. Um, and so I think what the church can do is, is to be, is to come alongside people, um, who are suffering and, uh, the church can, um, you know, be, um, a loving, um, and compassionate, um, force in the lives of, um, people who, who need that. And, you know, I think the church can do a lot of other practical things as well, um, for, you know, crap, you know, places where there are cracks in various programs, um, you know, that, you know, getting rides and, and checking in on people and things like that. Um, and, and just being a friend and a companion to people. Um, but I also think sort of on a, on a much broader scale, um, the church can help, um, deal with much more common things. Um, you know, so there's all kinds of different problems, um, within the healthcare, you know, you, anything can happen to the human body. Um, and sort of the case I highlighted was one very dramatic example of like how bad things can get, but there's also sort of this general, um, uh, lack of care for the human body. Um, in terms of the way that we eat and don't exercise and, um, you know, just and don't take medicines if we have hypertension or diabetes. And so I think that um, uh, and that that, you know, the more dramatic cases you see people spending, you know, the healthcare system spending millions of dollars and watching people die when they're very young. Um, but in, you know, more broadly, you see just, you know, five to 10 years being shaved off the lives or, you know, you get a, or some disabling of, you know, you get a heart attack or a stroke in your fifties, um, that sort of takes you out. And so I think that there are churches that are, a, churches are also able to kind of provide, um, people with, um, both a theological understanding of, of caring for their bodies that sort of moves them to take care of themselves. Um, and also some more of the practical, um, helps in, uh, you know, checking blood pressure and, 
um, dealing with common um, barriers to taking care of yourself. And someone who's doing a lot of this great work is um, a guy named Daniel Hale at Bayview Hospital here in Baltimore. It's part of the um, Johns Hopkins system. And what he does is um, he gets people who are already uh, well-respected in their local churches to go through a program to become this kind of lay community health workers. And then they, um, he partners, he has um, medical residents um, in the residency program there um, train these um, community health workers. And then they, so they, so the residents have to work hand in hand with members of the community um, and empower them. Um, and these members of the community get to have sort of this positive interaction with the um, the healthcare system um, that they can, and then they can sort of be mediators between this uh, massive system that is uh, often bewildering and um, alienating to people. Um, and they can, but they also, you know, they have the power to like deal with stuff um, that arises in their communities and, and help people in their congregations to um, take care of themselves better. Oh, that's great. You know, guys, this reminds me of uh, something I was reading uh, about in Japan. Uh, mm -hmm. th these these things are actually, these solutions that we're describing, they sound so idealistic, but they're also on the ground. Um, Japan has, I was just reading, over 120 social care co-ops, 3 million people belong to these things. And here's the interesting part uh, relating to what you were just describing, Matthew. Um, the the uh, cells uh, for this system are called Hans, and they amount to 10 or 20 people in the same neighborhood. So these 10 or 20 people get together maybe once a month, and they talk about preventative care. They are aligned with Japan's numerous consumer co-ops around things like uh, nutrition and healthy food distribution. But the other thing they do, and this is kind of a wonky thing, it's called co-production, meaning, and this is kind of where I think you're going, Matthew, it's sort of DIY health checks. They do their own blood pressure. You can do your own weight, muscle mass, uh, even stool urine analysis, uh, diabetes tests, and then you just forward the info you know, onto the professional uh, at the nearby uh, clinic. It's also somewhat social. I, I love the fact that the tea ceremonies are involved in these me monthly um, meetups. And these groups, these Hans, even get involved in conversations with the city planners, uh, particularly around elder care issues like public benches, uh, traffic light timing, ramps. And uh, they even do some sort of supplemental fundraising for special projects. So there are communities, you know, elsewhere in the world that have figured out uh, where this kind of democratizing of healthcare uh, needs to go. Yeah, no, that that sounds, uh, like, I said, like you said, idealistic. Yeah, no, that's, that's amazing. That's exactly what we need yeah. more of. Yep, yep. I recommend a book called Humanizing the Economy, by a guy named John Rostakis, R-E-S-T-A-K-I-S. The book is full of examples of this kind of stuff. And uh, you wonder as an American, you know, why, <laughs> why can't we figure this out? It's clearly working elsewhere. So, good stuff. Pete, any other thoughts on your end? I would love, um, along those lines... A question. One, th I've been interested in seeing patterns of, and it's funny you said humanizing the economy. I I call this area humanizing the caring economy. So it's yeah. specific, like specifically um, around the economic systems of care. So people that are not, I and the way I define it is people that are not like living the quote unquote like normal standard full. Uh, like uh, American life. So people who are sick, people who are young, people who are old, people who are imprisoned, people who are homeless. Um, what people who talk about humanizing the caring economy care about is, you know, they say that uh, we've had these third party bureaucracies um, take care of all these groups of people. And those third party bureaucracies are usually a lot of low wage workers, 
managed by like PhDs who are very, you know, coming out of the ivory tower. Um, and, uh, the fight right now is just to get those entities to have enough funding. But the, the next step after that is, you know, figure out ways that we could have volunteers who are not experts and are not pay, not necessarily paid, maybe subsidized or getting per diems, to have a culture of all of us uh, taking part of our time. And in addition to being part of the like material economy and our normal jobs, in addition to our family jobs, we also have a role in the caring economy. So a much more systematic way of taking volunteering in elder care homes, volunteering in hospitals, volunteering at homeless shelters, things like that, and make it much more not a cherry on top of your life, but a integrated part of your life. And I'd be interested in to see what role even non-medical experts play in hospitals you've seen, or just having visitors come um, to different, you know, wings or especially in elder care, the amount that like social interaction matters. I'd love to see if you've had any experience with that in your medical practice or seen uh, examples of that. I, uh, I'm unfortunately haven't seen a whole lot of that, um, sort of in, in the places that I've practiced. Um, uh, there was, uh, I mean, when I was at, uh, when I was at healthcare for the homeless in Baltimore, uh, there was definitely a lot of, um, certainly within the, um, Within the clinic itself, there were a lot of uh, groups that were encouraged and they had some volunteers that would come in to do like art classes with um, the clients there um, and a lot of encouraging like, you know, different people within um, these groups and and different clients, some of whom were further, you know, getting closer to more independent living than others to sort of help one another um, to grow in those skills and to befriend one another. Um, and, uh, but I mean, even in, I would say even perhaps a little bit more, um, in South Sudan where we had, um, the hospital chaplains were our local pastors and they were also the social workers and case managers and, uh, CPS workers, uh, because there was no, you know, none of those things. And I, again, I don't think we should eliminate all of those things, but I do, I did see there that there was a model of, you know, people who were respected, you know, with, with no other, um, social, uh, structures or, or, you know, and, and untrustworthy government systems, uh, there was still, um, there was kind of an, an authority, um, and a willingness within the local church to, um, support, um, people who, who were vulnerable and to work together. And there was definitely a much stronger sense, at least within families, that, um, you know, when, when someone faced a health crisis when, within their family, um, it was the obligation of everyone within that family to, to help one another, um, you know, and, and their family was much broader. And, and, you know, you're talking more about extended kin networks, not just mother, father, sister, brother. Um, so, I mean, I think what you describe, I think, is, is really important. And I'd be, um, I'm definitely going to read that book <laughs> um, because I do... Uh, you know, I do think that it is, um, you know, that, that we have uh, so much time um, given to um, leisure pursuits and, um, you know, other less. And, and there's so there's so many people who are lonely and vulnerable um, and struggling. Um, and I think that, um, you know, we in order to sort of you know, be good neighbors. We have to, um, you just spend time with one another and to do these, these very basic tasks of, of being friends and caring for one another. And, um, you know, just, I, I mean, you meant, you sort of rattled off that list of, of people who are vulnerable. Um, and it makes sort of event, you know, you sort of start to think, Oh, well, gosh, the, the fully able-bodied, 
people who are capable of total independence are actually the minority. Um, <laughs> and the good news is that, you know, even, even people who are, you know, children, um, for example, can be an incredible blessing to others, you know, sorts of, you know, people who are, um, disabled or mentally ill. And, um, you know, I think a more intense version of this is, uh, is, uh, large, you know, the arc, um, for people with mental disabilities. Um, but, um, I think that that sort of model of, of caring, you know, for your neighbors and people that, you know, um, uh, and, and, you know, like, I, I think that that's an absolutely vital part. Um, and it's, it's something that you, a, a, it's very, it's virtually impossible to, to bureaucratize that. Um, and it always, I think it's very awkward and doesn't work very well. Um, when you, you know, the, the government cannot form virtue. It, it cannot pay anyone to be your friend. Um, <laughs> right. uh, yeah. So, so I do. And we, so yeah, I, I think that we absolutely do need to be, um, sort of developing um, those kind of networks and, and encouraging those sorts of relationships. Matthew, if you would, give us some, uh, <clears throat> some links here for people who might want to uh, donate to your work, for people who want to read your writing. Uh, where should we go? Uh, so the place to start is, uh, is my website. It's uh, matthewandmaggie.org. Um, and uh, there you can find, there's a link for, um, if you want to sign up for our family email updates where we send pictures and give more detailed updates on where we're going and what we're doing um, in East Africa, uh, you can sign up there. There's also a link there for giving to us um, and supporting our work because um, we are 100% um, supported. And that's what allows us to do what we do. Um, and then um, that's, you can also find our writing, my writing there. So links to, you know, pretty much everything I've ever written about healthcare and other things. Um, and then uh, I'm on Twitter at twitter.com, Matthew underscore Loftus. Um, follow at your own risk. Um, <laughs> and then, um, yeah, that's, um, that's, that's where I am online. Great, great. All right. Matthew, thank you for uh, sitting in with us today. Thank you, Pete, and thank you, everybody, for dropping by Dorothy's Place. Uh, our home base is Solidarity Hall at solidarityhall.org, and we hope to see you with us around the table here next time. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks. See you all soon.